I'm not going to preach on this, but I thought the psalm we heard today was interesting because it reminded me of my seminary days. We, uh, the grace we said before meals was from this psalm. The eyes of all wait upon you, O Lord, and you give them their food in due season. You open wide your hand and satisfy the needs of every living creature. So the dean would come into the refectory before all the meals, then clear his throat and read, The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and then we would respond from the asterisk in each of those verses. When I first got to Neshota House, we said it in Latin, and I was glad that we moved to English the next year immediately. It was a little easier. All of the readings this morning talk about uh, the, the, the new age, the age to come, everlasting life, the resurrection. So it provides the opportunity to talk about the ways in which the Bible speaks to us about how we might understand this. You know, a lot of this stuff is uh, governed the way we think about it in our common life together in the pastoral experience of the church is often driven by a high level of sentimentality. One of the best sermons I ever heard in seminary was by a local priest who said, sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. So what I want to do is speak about Haggai, about what Paul's driving at in Second Thessalonians, and then Jesus speaking to the Sadducees uh, in the gospel for uh, today. Haggai. Haggai means my holiday in Hebrew. Don't ask, but that's what his name means. He is part of a prophetic tradition that it signals the end of the ancient prophetic tradition in Judaism, post-exilic prophecy. So post-exilic means after the exile in Babylon, and the people are now coming back from Babylon. King Cyrus has let them go in about 538 BCE, and they arrive trickling back to Jerusalem. And so Haggai was a prophet from about 538 to 520 BCE. So we can specifically date historically when he was exercising his prophetic ministry. And what this is about today is the way in which the people might see, through his prophetic utterances, a way of understanding God's work in history and how exile restoration and return can be realized in the hearts of people in terms of what it is that's important for us. You know, we have been living in Christianity for 2,000 years and a fair amount of it, certainly for the last 500 years, has had a lot to do with the whole idea that uh, God is somewhere else, that heaven is somewhere else. That hell is somewhere else, not here, and that God's presence cannot be seen 
in the ordinary course of human events and in human history. And the biblical witness speaks, in a sense, against that, even though it has been interpreted, interpreted differently. It tells us that we have to speak about God's presence in the here and now. In the cosmology of the Hebrew people, God definitely was here with us in God's space. And this is one of the buildings where they would say God is here. God is dwelling here. And God rests here on the Sabbath. So that when we're here in God's presence, we begin to see uh, some of the ways in which God might be at work in the hearts of people. I've gotten very interested in uh, Bible translation recently. And I thought uh, I was watching a YouTube video about the King James Bible. I've told you about this. And uh, one of the things that is interesting to me, and it shows you how hard it is to buck some of this traditionalism. There's a difference, by the way, too, between tradition and traditionalism. And we're going to hear about that from Paul in a few minutes. But in Isaiah, we're about ready to read some of this in Advent and then again in Lent. In Isaiah chapter 40, it opens with, Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort my people, saith your God. That's the King James, the authorized version. It's beautiful. If you read it in Hebrew, it says, Speak to the heart of my people. Speak to the heart of my people. So some people said, well, the other thing, comfort ye, comfort ye, has been hallowed by usage. We should use that because people are familiar with it, and I have no kick about that. But don't you think it's interesting to know what was in the text and how it might bear on the way we think about things? Because we know that in the Hebrew reckoning, the heart was the seat of the intellect. And I've mentioned to you before that the, some of the most recent research on the brain suggests to us that thinking and feeling occur simultaneously. There isn't my reason and this is my feeling. We do it all at once. Speak to the heart of my people. And there ought to be some comfort in that, I would think. You know? Anyway, that's a bit off the subject, Haggai is saying, now it's been 18 years since we have come back from Babylon. King Cyrus let us go, and now King Darius, or Darius, has said we can, or had told us initially, we can rebuild the temple. And there were a lot of people who had returned from exile, and if you pardon me, were sitting on their assets. <laughs> Many of them frozen. And Haggai is saying, we need to get to work to build the temple because two things are going to happen. We're going to realize the place where God dwells. We're going to be participants in this with God. And it's not unimportant that we'll put some people back to work. It will create jobs. This is a recurrent theme, isn't it, in 
in uh, human life. So he's urging that on them and says, this is one of the ways that we see God's restorative process at work in an ordinary, commonplace thing. So when we think about the new age, the age to come, it has something to do with the historical reality in which people find themselves. And so that sharpens the reader to think, you know, I may need to look at that in a lot of different ways. Haggai and his, his group then would have thought mainly, if not exclusively, in corporate terms as the people. Their own subjective beliefs and views were certainly subordinated to that, but for I don't know how long, certainly in Western society, how I feel and think about it and what I believe personally is very important. So can't we think about this in terms of God's restorative purposes uh, in, in all our hearts and minds? Have we ever experienced some species of exile in terms of alienation, difficulty, disease, anxiety, and begun to see that God's presence in some form has been able to move us in a way of, of return? from this confusion and difficulty, from exile into a place of restoration and peace. And Haggai was saying, this is the way that we see God's presence here in Jerusalem now. We believe that God, and certainly Isaiah did, we believe that God was working through these Persian kings. And God's purposes were being fulfilled by an incredible source. So that's one way we think about the age to come and the new age is it occurs within history, not somewhere else. I don't know how long ago it was, but back uh, during the period in the Renaissance, a manuscript was discovered of... Uh, Epicurious. You've heard of Epicureans. It's a philosophical, a Greek philosophical outlook. And Epicurious said in this, you know, there may be the gods. We have the gods. They are out there. They are remote from us. They're not concerned about us. Occasionally, they intervene and monkey around capriciously in this particular case most of the time. But they come into human history and they do a few things and then they're back out again. So in, in the Greek tradition out of which Western philosophy comes, that begins to give people the idea that maybe that's the way the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph behaves. When the people who wrote that didn't believe that at all. They thought God was right down here. So when you've got a God who's way up here, then everything else that pertains to God is way up here. Right? And part of the importance of these readings is that it begins to restore a sense of presence. The presence of the divine. 
And Paul in 2 Thessalonians today is speaking about some issues that have occurred in the Thessalonian church with regard to um, apocalyptic occurrences that are that, that, that apparently to some who've come there in his absence, his Paul's absence, have said the kingdom has already come. God has already come here. All of this stuff has been accomplished. There's nothing more to do. So we can definitely sit on our frozen assets. We don't have to worry about it. Right? The reason there's that passage in Second Thessalonians, a couple of chapters later, about those who don't work shouldn't eat, is because nobody was working because they were sitting around basking in some cloud cuckoo land reality they had believed arrived. He wasn't trying to deny people food. He was saying, well, if you're not holding your end up, you know, you got to think this through as a community of faith. It was not used in the sense that the congressman on the Agriculture Committee that I've spoken about recently used the term in order to justify the uh, reduction in the funding of the food stamp program in this country. Right? How does somebody get on the Agriculture Committee of the United States Congress and the House of Representatives who received $3.5 million in agricultural subsidies in the past year. Wouldn't you think that when they were vetting people who said, I want to be on this committee, they would say, you know, I, I think you ought to be on some other committee. Then it might not smell so bad. You know? One of my professors in seminary said to me once, when I said, he said, uh, Mr. Brewer, I sense a point of view coming through. <laughs> so Paul is saying, you know, this age that you believe has come has not come. And there will be some ways to indicate there may be a shift in what is to come as we read the signs in human history over time. But my advice to you and what I said to you when I was with you was this. The way in which you become more spiritually mature is to stick to the traditions that you have been taught. And it is by that way that we understand tradition as putting gas back in the tank. Paul always spoke about passing on the tradition, as never, he never used the term, I am handing down to you the tradition. He said, I am handing on to you, which means the shared stewardship of the deep traditions of Christianity, permitting the way in which people understand their meaning in every age to be adjusted so that we understand the power of tradition, not traditionalism. So Paul says the way in which you understand the future age is to read the signs of the times, and they may change, and to await the general resurrection. So we're going to get to that, what it means when we talk about this. You know, lots of us want to know when we have somebody we love who dies, where are they now, right? 
Does my mother know what I'm doing? Maybe that wouldn't be a good idea if it was her. <laughs> Those are questions we legitimately ask. Now, I agree with N.T. Wright about this. I'll give it away in advance. I think that the, the people that I love are safe with God and Christ, and they are comfortable in his presence until the general resurrection when we will see them again and we will all be raised together. In John's Gospel, there's a famous passage that we read often at funerals, at requiems. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Or, in my Father's house there are many mansions, which is the authorized translation. I sort of like the idea of mansions, but rooms, the word used for rooms there means like a hotel room. It's a temporary dwelling place. So you're not going to be there forever. You're with God, but we're now coming to the general resurrection sometime. When will that be? I don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us when. You know? Doesn't tell us. Can my father see me now? I don't know and the Bible doesn't tell us. Some would like you to believe that it does, but I'm sorry to say that it does not. Not because I want to be uh, a curmudgeon or a iconoclast. So that means that we have to trust in God. And we have many other promises in the biblical text that suggest to us that our guesses about this may in fact be true. That those who die and have gone to God are safe with God in God's space. And very near. Jesus says in the Gospels, the kingdom of God is near you. It means right next to you. So that all of us are the beneficiaries of the presence of God. And I think what happens is, is that as we get more mature in our spiritual life, we begin to realize the, the power of that presence. We can feel it. Or even in a sort of semi-negative way by saying, I don't know how I got from there to here, but the only possible reason I have is because of God's grace and God's presence. Moving through difficult periods hard things in our life. So Paul is saying, stick with the traditions. Stick with the traditions you have learned because that's the way in which you develop uh, the strength. I think the hardest thing for that is understanding that that involves often doing and saying the same things over and over again to remind ourselves. So here's the situation on the ground in Luke. We haven't read this because we had All Saints Sunday and some other things, but Jesus has come to Jerusalem now, and he has uh, had made the scene in the temple uh, with the money changers. And he is at present, after this, engaged in a controversy with one of the leading groups uh, in the Judaism of his day. There are two major parties. There are some other parties. 
Two major parties in Judaism, certainly during the time of Luke's gospel writing, but also in the time of Jesus. The first group are the Sadducees, and the second group are the Pharisees, and we've all heard those names. The Pharisees are the ones in the gospel who get the worst press of all, because the gospel writers were writing about them as they had actually risen in prominence uh, after Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the Pharisees who permit Judaism to continue as a viable religious expression after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the creation of what's called, it's a bit controversial, but some refer to this Judaism as rabbinic Judaism, which is what we have now. But the Sadducees were the ones in this debate that had a lock on the temple. And they were sort of Jewish fundamentalists. They believed that the only location for authority in the practice and understanding of Judaism was the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or what we as Christians call the Old Testament. That's the sole place you can look to find out how to do stuff and what to do and so forth. Nothing else. The Pharisees said, we believe that the Torah is absolutely central, but we also believe in the tradition that has grown around the interpretation of the Torah in terms of how we live with this and what we do under circumstances that we have to figure out because all the answers aren't there. So that's where we get books like the Talmud and things like that. So the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection from the dead. The concept of resurrection, the resurrection of the body, was abroad during the time of Jesus. So the Sadducees said, we're going to ask Jesus this trick question about something that is part of Jewish life. Do you remember the book of Ruth? That... Every once in a while, maybe in my ministry, about eight or ten times, uh, when a couple I'm going to marry, we get together and talk about what we're going to do with the liturgy and so forth. Uh, One of them will say, I want you to read that beautiful passage from the book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. And I say, well... We can read it, but you need to know that Ruth is not speaking to Boaz. She's talking to Naomi. <laughs> and maybe three or four of these times I've had them. They won't know. <laughs> Talk about being cavalier with the biblical text. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. What they're talking, the book of Ruth is the location for something called the Leverate Law. And in Israel, that meant that if a woman was married to a man and he died and she was made a widow and he had brothers, the brother would marry her and continue the line. Whether they were childless or no, if they were childless, that was definitely what you did. But if they had children, the line got continued through Leverate marriage. So they take Jesus through seven brothers all who die, leaving this widow childless, and then she dies. And so they say, well, in the general resurrection, whose 
wife will she be? Inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) And Jesus said in the general resurrection, there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage. It is a transformed world. We're all going to be together again now. We don't think about this in that sense. And he responds to the fact that God is the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Abraham, you know, will be in the bosom of Abraham. Everybody but Queen Victoria, who will not be in the bosom of... Maybe she'll be in the bosom of Haggai. It's hard to know. So here's what I might say about this, uh, what you read in the gospel and how you get uh, somewhere with this. Jesus uh, says in the gospels, and Paul tells us as well, that um, we are always safe with God. And by virtue of that, we have the opportunity to respond to this reality by being God's people in the world. Uh, In the Reformation, initially there were some mistakes made because Luther interpreted Paul as understanding Judaism as a religion of works righteousness, as being enslaved by the law, and now being liberated from the law. And in fact, in the Judaism of Paul's day, he wouldn't have understood that description at all. Because the reason he kept the law was to give thanks for being in. For being part of the covenant. So what Paul thought, what he came to on this was, you know what? I've done this all my life. I'm blameless before God. But I realize now that because of my belief in Christ, I'm in. A Jew is in because of belief in Christ. A Gentile is in because of belief in Christ. We use the term saved or justified, diakosuni theu in Greek. So that means that we are now not having to do this we do as Christian people worship God as giving thanks to God for being in. Not to get in or to stay in. You are in because of your belief in Christ. I can't emphasize this too much. It's also a privilege to say it and to preach it. People have forgotten it over time, often. Heaven is God's dimension of present reality. Heaven and earth intermingle in the temple, in the church. And that is sometimes why we feel good in church. You know, people say, I don't know whether I believe any of this or all of it, but I always feel better. Right? Good. We want that. Feeling better is good. I can tell you that because of recent experience. (laughs) So give thanks to God for God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. 
know that uh, we don't have to believe in a lot of apocalyptic imagery and hair-raising Star Trek moments uh, to believe in the coming of the resurrection. You know? Told you about those English tombstones. And that's 18th century, moving through the 19th. Gone, but will return. Then it switches to gone home, somewhere else. Right? Well, where is this place? Here. And so I think that the, the Christian faith in life is some, has something to do with uh, acknowledging that. Uh, Frederick Diekner, who is a, a, a famous theologian, says this, uh, which I think is good. It sounds a little ooh. But he's, he wrote a book in 1973 called Whistling in the Dark. We go to our graves as dead as a doornail and are given our lives back again by God. That is resurrected just as we were given them by God in the first place. Amen. <laughs>